Before we get started, I just want to point out that this episode was recorded a few days before the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science basically reversed their course on the subject of going with a best popular film category for the 2019 Oscars. I'm mentioning this because during a portion of this conversation that Phil and I had, we do discuss what the Academy was even thinking by going with this category. I've decided to leave the conversation 100% intact because a lot of the subject matter we talk about surrounding the Oscars covers more than just the best popular film category. So once again, this episode was recorded a few days before that decision was made. I hope everyone enjoys this conversation and thank you so much. The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now... For our featured presentation. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to welcome back to the show writer, director, and my friend, Phil Joanna. Phil, how are you today? Great, Dana. Great to be back. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me. This is the Business of Film 2018. Last Ooh. year. Yeah. It's been a year since we chat last chatted talking wow. about sort of, you know, the ins and outs of uh of the Hollywood machine. And I think I want to start with the box office so far this year in 2018. And, you know, I'm just going over the top 20 films of the year. No real surprises for you, correct? I mean, everything is sort of status quo as far as the, the big IPs keep churning them out. I don't think there's anything that surprising at all. In fact, it's I think the predictability of it all has kind of made movie going less interesting. I, I, I think that, you know, it's kind of so pre-programmed in the sense of, you know, regardless of what anyone thought about Jurassic World, it grossed a, a billion, three hundred million dollars worldwide. So you can have your opinion whether it worked or didn't work, but it's kind of beside the point, isn't it? I mean, I think that obviously there was a, a, a pleasant surprise for, for everybody with Black Panther being different. But, you know, is it is anyone shocked that Avengers Infinity War made two billion dollars worldwide? I don't think I think if you had to predict a year ago. And you looked at the slate, you'd be like, yeah, Avengers will be the top movie. I mean, it's, you know, Jurassic will be in there. Incredibles will be in there. Deadpool will be in there. I mean, Mission Impossible did better probably than a lot of people thought. Uh, You've got Ant-Man and Ready Player One. And I I think it's kind of funny that number nine and ten on the international are Detective Chinatown 2 and uh, Operation Red Sea, both Chinese films or, or you know, produced for the Chinese market, which is pretty funny if you look at it. So domestically, uh, uh, Operation Red Sea grossed 1.5 million. Detective Chinatown 2 grossed 2 million here in America. Meanwhile, 577 million and 542 million, you know, obviously uh, overseas. And, and, and I, I would think it doesn't break it out, but I would think in the Chinese market and uh, mainly. And, and it's just pretty interesting that that gets you number uh, nine and 10, which is why everyone's so desperate to crack the Chinese market. But yeah, I mean, I just think that I just think that it's all pretty much, and it's funny too, because even when you get into the next ten, you know, yeah, so you've got, I mean, Solo is obviously a surprise. I, I suppose we'll talk about that. But then you've got Fifty Shades, Mamma Mia, you know, Peter Rabbit, Skyscraper, Ocean's Eight, a Pacific Rim. They probably hoped was going to do better at at 290 worldwide. Maze Runner, Tomb Raider, Paddington. That all makes sense too. You know, it's kind of now you got the mid range. You know, I'm sure they hope more for Tomb Raider which only did 57 domestic. 
now you're doing Sidious, you know, in the, in the upper 20s and Sidious and the Equalizer, Red Sparrow, the first purge. I know they hoped Wrinkle in Time was going to do better than it did, but at number 30. But it, you know, it's almost, it, it's so weird. It's it's just like exactly what you would expect. There, There's very, very few. I find those two Chinese films the biggest surprise in the list. The Meg, I think no one really thought The Meg would do 462 million worldwide. But what's interesting is when you saw the trailer for The Meg, and people forget Jason Statham's in that movie too, and he's a big international star. I just think, you know, I looked at that, I saw that trailer and I was like, that movie's going to do business. Yeah. You know, I, it just looked like a cheap thrill. It just like good, cheap, big fun. And, and it also obviously didn't take itself too seriously. I didn't see the film, but but the trailer you could tell. And, you know, I just think they kind of went, screw it. Let's have some fun with this, you know, because we can. And everyone's afraid of sharks. So anyway, I uh, I, I find it uh, very, very predictable. And for that reason, a little bit depressing. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think that the I don't think that there's there's obviously disappointments as there are every year. But there aren't that many big surprises here when you really when you really look at it. Does the international box office really speak to the fact that the United States is not really the target audience anymore. Like these oh. films are being produced for a worldwide audience and the studios are no longer really counting on the United States and Canada to bring in the lion's share of the profits. Is that correct? Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, you are, I mean, who's the most successful studio. Okay. So it's obviously Disney and they are swinging for the international fences every single time. And you can, you can see it here. I mean, even Avengers, you know, you go from, 678 million here domestic, which is like you said, uh, they consider Canada and, and North America and and the, Amer- and the United States overseas, 1.3 billion. Ju- I mean, Jurassic, for, that, which isn't Disney, Universal, but 414 versus 885. Let's see here. Deadpool, 318 versus 415. Mission Impossible, 204 versus 442. Uh, Ant-Man, 213 versus 381. Uh, Ready Player One, 137 versus 445. So, you know, more than triple yeah. Uh, yeah. overseas. So without a doubt, there there just is no, there's no doubt that you need to reach, if you want to be in the top 10, heck, even the top 20, you know, and really be a top studio, you have to be selling to the international market equally, if not first, which obviously has changed the content of films. What are the studios doing to sort of appeal to the inter- international market? I know that in some cases they're, they're, they're partner- partnering with, you know, Chinese film production companies. Uh, you seem to be casting more international stars. I mean, is that kind of what the studio is doing, just sort of bring in the international market? It's not just all CGI spectacle which translates to any language is there's got to be some other things the studios are doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that they do. You can see that there's, there's casting choices that happen, you know, uh, particularly for the Asian market. I do think that the biggest shift is telling stories that are easily digestible in any language. This is why one of the reasons why kind of let's call it the comic book genre has had such staying power is, is yes. I mean, it's very successful domestically too. And there's a huge fan base here, but it translates extremely well overseas because these are very mythic iconic stories. 
and and it's really good versus evil and you know the heroes are very pretty much very clear cut clear cut excuse me although it's interesting because i think when you look at the dc universe it's it's like a little bit less clear cut right batman is a little bit angsty and you know kind of cuts both ways and you know he's kind of good and bad etc etc which you know worked in the nolan series but is is kind of becoming you know less workable over time in terms of kind of the you know the wider universe that they're trying to trying to create at DC, and I and I think that there's more gray area at least in their movies, and I think that the, obviously the more kind of black and white, good versus bad. I mean, you really look at it's interesting. I'm looking at the Disney's releases so far this year. So you have Avengers, Black Panther, Incredibles, Ant Man, Solo, Wrinkle in Time, and Christopher Robin, which is a Winnie the Pooh movie. That pretty much explains it all. And uh, let's see their total is uh three but five billion eight hundred million so and their average is 829 million per picture all of those translate except maybe a wrinkle in time and i think they weren't really swinging for the fences uh with christopher robin i mean i think it was a little bit kind of more of a classic limited like a more limited perspective in terms of their audience so if you really take out Wrinkle in Time and which Wrinkle in Time could have maybe let's see yeah see you know it did twenty four percent of its business overseas so versus seventy five percent you know so it 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 grossed a hundred here and thirty two over there so again a Wrinkle in Time did not translate because it's more of a character driven sci fi story as opposed to kind of big broad stroke okay last year's business of film twenty seventeen we spent a, a good portion of it talking about sort of the the troubled production that was solo a star wars story disney's uh second standalone anthology film in the star wars universe i don't know if you and i talked about our expectations for how we thought it was going to do at the box office i think we spent more time talking about sort of behind the scenes and and you know, talking about Lord and Miller and and you know the steps they could have taken versus the ones they actually did and and and, and Ron Howard and, and all that all that stuff. So the movie comes out and no surprise to anybody listening here that it it didn't do well and it I mean it didn't do well at all by the, the the numbers you just put up talking about all the Disney films that came out the the average the eight hundred million dollar average was brought down substantially by Solo and Wrinkle in Time. Uh, I remember reading that Solo just flat bombed in the Chinese market. It did, yeah. What happened? Star Wars, Star Wars has always struggled in the Chinese market. Actually, even even the successful films have not done as well as they had hoped because they they just didn't kind of grow up with um, the original trilogy or even the next round so much that George did. So I think that's had struggled to get a foothold there in general and then so so then you've got solo come along which is a reference directly back to the original three because there was no han solo in the next three i think that again they're kind of like solo who in china yeah i mean it, it's pretty amazing you look at you know the overseas numbers again of of avengers which is 1.3 billion or even black panther 646 and you've got solos 179 million overseas so you know you're you're geez you're so far off what you would expect well i think that so solo is was saddled first and foremost like we discussed last year with the with the story of they fired their directors so as soon as you do that there's suspicion that there's going to be something wrong with the movie everyone knows 
oh, okay, like the whole thing, it's a mess, it's a disaster, you know, it's all out there, particularly with the hardcore fan base and probably even the casual fan base. You know, that story was so uh, well known that I that it wasn't like a, you know, a Hollywood secret, which is pretty funny because before the internet, that kind of thing wouldn't have reached the mainstream as much as it does now. But, you know, there's very few secrets anymore. So I think that that, first of all, set a tone. Then they bring in Ron Howard, who's, you know, a heavy hitter and knows what he's doing. And so that kind of, that kind of helped smooth that over. And the cast, you know, went along and and all of that. But then you start hearing they reshot 75% of the movie and things like that, and maybe more. It all just feels, you know, you're kind of like, huh. So I think what people did was they reserved, rather than just kind of enthusiastically embracing the idea of this movie and getting excited about it, maybe more like they did Rogue One. The other spinoff, they were kind of much more circumspect and kind of, huh, let's wait and see what people have to say. And then, you know, you had the reviews, which were mixed. So that then gets people going, oh, well, maybe I'll wait until my friends tell me what they thought. And then I think on top of it, you had you did have the kind of downward fatigue of the prior Star Wars movie. The Ryan one, and I think that, you know, a lot of people were frustrated or disappointed or by that, by the second one in the new trilogy. And so I think that may have quite clearly had an impact. And then lastly, and this I think is a big part of it. I think this is as much of it as anything else. Han Solo is Harrison Ford. That's just all there is to it. And you don't... I don't think if you if they had made another Han Solo movie starring Harrison Ford, I seriously think they could have overcome everything I just said because I think a lot of people would have been like, you know what, I'm paying my ten bucks to go see good old Harrison Ford reprise Han Solo as a complete, even though they killed him off, you know, in in J.J. Abrams Star Wars, it could have been set in you know the past. I think that the star power of Harrison Ford being Han Solo cannot be underestimated on any level. It's like, I don't know. I mean, this is not a great example, but it's out in the theaters. Now, I think if they did, you know, Mission Impossible with a young Tom Cruise, but not Tom Cruise, people would be like, why am I going? It's Mission Impossible is Tom Cruise's show. Why am I going to do that? Go watch that. And and I think that maybe if they had done a spinoff where a young Solo was a part of the narrative, but it wasn't, quote, his movie. This is called Solo. It wasn't, you know, the previous adventures of Star Wars and he pops up. You go, oh, look, there's young Han Solo as a part of it. But when you basically say this guy's going to be a young Harrison Ford, the poor. First of all, the poor actor has no chance. Right. What's going to do? Imitate him. I mean, it's just impossible. He's behind the eight ball out of the gate. It's not Harrison. Again, it'd be like, even remember, remember the last Indiana Jones where he threw the hat to Sheila LaBeouf. Everyone's like, mm, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. And uh, whatever you think of Sheila LaBeouf or not, eh, I don't think we're going to. And sure enough, they're going to do another one. And it's not going to be him. It's going to be Harrison again, because I think they overestimated the notion that the character was bigger than the star. And I think particularly given the nostalgia for what happened to Han Solo in the first J.J. Abrams one, I I think that people were like, huh, who's playing Harrison Ford? They don't say, who's playing Han Solo? You say, who's playing Harrison Ford? Hmm. That's really what you wanted to know. 
And then I even watched the trailers, you know, the series of trailers going carefully going, is this guy Harrison Ford? Can he be like Harrison Ford? Is he as cool as Harrison Ford? Does he have the swagger of Harrison Ford? And again, nothing against the poor actor. I mean, at all. It's just that you can't be, you know, as great as Robert Downey Jr. is, it's tough to be Chaplin. You know what I mean? Chaplin's Chaplin, you know, back in the day. That's that's a really old reference. But uh, uh, it's really tough to take on an icon and an attempt to replay a role that another actor invented. So I think that had a lot to do with it too. I think that, that, you know, if they did an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie, yeah, maybe Ewan McGregor, you know, he kind of established it. I know he wants to play it. So there'd be some of the fan base that would accept that more readily because he did. But remember, those movies weren't called Obi-Wan Kenobi part one, two, three. He was a part of it. And it was really about, you know, Anakin which also struggled struggled in that regard too. Like, you know, the young kid and the older Anakin was a struggle for a lot of people. So I think that this idea of, uh, it'd be like doing a, a young Princess Leia story. Like who's gonna be Carrie Fisher? So anyway, or, or a young Luke story. Again, I think even, even though Harrison is, you know, obviously so charismatic, I think for any character that's been established this many years, it's very, very tough to recreate that magic. And I think that I think that also was a was part of the problem with, with them that movie working. Given everything you've just said, which I completely understand, were you still surprised with how low the numbers turned out? Absolutely. You think it Absolutely. was you think it was going to at least break even or, or at oh, least hit the billion dollar mark? I don't know if it hit a billion, but I mean, what did Rogue Rogue got up to 900 or something like that? I you know, I thought it would do Rogue business. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, everyone died at the end of Rogue One. <laughs> I mean, so I figured it would at least be fun and which and do do some, you know, I mean, I mean, Rogue One ended up doing. Oh, well, you know what? Rogue One did 532. Well, I thought it did much, much better than that. So 532 versus 392. So 200 less than Rogue One. OK, I, I could have at least done Rogue One business. OK, and that's 200 shy of that. What was interesting is when I did see the movie, I saw it opening weekend, like I have every new Star Wars film, bought my tickets ahead of time, had my seats. I was one of about 15 people in an IMAX theater. I mean, it was just sort of, it was, it was something else to see. This is what I'm saying is that I don't necessarily, and I think, you know, I kind of Ron Howard came out afterwards and said, I don't, I don't think the response is commensurate with the actual film, you know, um, I, I think that people didn't show up at the start, Yeah. let alone like show up and then turn on the film. I think they just didn't show up. And I think the prior Star Wars film, my, my two biggest things against it would have been less so, even though I started out with this, less so the director change, because I don't think people really care that much about that. It taints it, but you can overcome that. I think that it, for instance, you know, the J.J. Abrams version, if he had replaced a director and that movie had still come out, I think it would have still done the exact same amount of business, even if J.J. Abrams would come in midway through. They, you know, if you like it, you like it, right? And I think that it got great reviews. It was really, you know, at the time, it was a big, big deal, and, and it did the business it, it used, expected. I think that it was much more – it's not Harrison Ford – and the previous Star Wars movie left a lot of people uh, questioning, you know, things and frustrated and upset. And it was a little bit of a protest, perhaps. You know what I mean? A little bit of a, 
I'm voting with my feet here. Uh, I don't like what you did in the last Star Wars, and I don't like that this is like Harris, not Harrison Ford, and we're not coming. I mean, there it's a very. I mean, for those people listening to this that love love Star Wars, you guys are serious fans, and they don't like you. They don't dig you messing around <laughs> with with their with their you know with their story. I mean, look, I'll admit I was disappointed in the second, you know, in the, in the most recent Star Wars Star Wars film. And I never remember their little subtitle names. You never, it's just like, you know, the force awakens, the force goes to sleep, the force <laughs> takes a nap, the force has a bad dream, whatever they're called. I don't really care about that, but I, I, I see them. And, and I just thought Luke Skywalker should have got gotten to, you know, let rip. You know what I mean? It was his turn. He'd waited in hibernation all these years. He was supposed to be our Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, even Alec Guinness, you know, got his due, was out there in the Death Star and riding around in the Millennium Falcon. And I know that he showed up at the end to have his virtual fight with with Kylo Ren and all that. But uh, no, I wanted him to be a big part of that movie and not hide out in a cave. And as much as I love Kathy Kennedy and I, and I really, you know, how it's always easy in hindsight with these things, I um I wanted to see Luke Skywalker kick ass. Sorry, and he didn't get to, in my opinion. And I think that's the biggest failing of that movie. In in a nutshell, you can have all your other things about going off to the gambling planet and riding around on those creatures and all those other stuff. Fine, but if Luke had gotten to kick ass and people jumped out of their chairs when Luke did his thing throughout the movie, not just in the last 10, 15 minutes, but throughout the movie. And even if then he, you know, was destroyed or went to another plane like Obi-Wan did, uh, another level of the force, fine. That would have been fine. But he didn't get his due. And I think, you know, and again, I just, it's easy to look back on, but God, just to not use him is so frustrating. What does J.J. have on his plate right now? They've started filming episode nine. They brought him back. I mean, the decision was made after The Last Jedi came out. What? What yeah. what what amount of pressure do you think he's feeling right now? Oh man, I would love to be JJ Abrams right now. First of all, he's figured it out. He knew what to do in the first one, right? So he did it, he delivered it. People can have their criticisms of it, as we've all read, but the point is it worked, it was fun, it was entertaining. And and look, he, he, he and he brought it back, you know, from from where we left off, let's say to rise, Lord Vader, rise. We've we've come back from that. I just think to, with the expectations now driven so low and people so frustrated and for a guy who so understands the canon, you know, like he really gets, I think, gets it. I just think, oh, my God, he's he's I, I, I think the expect I, I, look, I think he's in a great, great position to bring this thing back and be a hero and be the way, you know, be the guy who got it back on track. And I think it's a, a no lose almost um, considering his skill at doing it in the past. I think, you know, how well he did in the past. So I think it would be awesome to be J.J. Abrams right now on that. And he's already saying, oh, this person might come back and that person might come back. And, and he's already thinking about ways to make up for Luke Skywalker's unfortunate departure. And, and I already. You know, and we hear that he's obviously, I mean, Mark Hamill's in that film, right? I mean, that's been confirmed. Is yep. it not? I mean, he may be a ghost like Obi-Wan <coughs> just things to people, which I never was a huge fan of. I wanted to see Obi-Wan continue to kick ass on in two and three. But uh, but still, 
you know, we don't know how he'll be utilized, but I suspect they're going to come up with some very clever things and maybe even some backtracking from they may they may, you know, get old backhoe out and fill in some of the holes that were dug up last time. And I, I think that I think he's probably got a pretty clever plan as to how to get this thing back on track. So I, I, I would love to be in his position. I never would be, but I, I would I would love it. Sure. It makes you wonder, though, how long this final episode will be. I, there was a part of me the other day I was thinking, Phil, I was like, it wouldn't surprise me if they broke this into two movies, a la... You read my mind. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they because you've got to... Because, and, and I don't want to get into a whole discussion about The Last Jedi, but because I just did a five-hour-long conversation on on my show here not too long ago where we sort of talked about all of the films. But I think my one of my biggest issues with the film was it, it felt like a complete movie in the sense that everything seemed pretty much wrapped up at the end and there wasn't that major cliffhanger uh, a la right. Empire Strikes Back. So right. I just I just feel like JJ's got a lot to do. And I just don't know if two hours and 15 minutes, which is that's how long The Force Awakens was, I don't know if that's going to be enough time to get it all done. We'll find out. I mean... Uh... It would not surprise me in the slightest. You know, they they've done it with the Avengers. They've done it with uh, they did it with Harry Potter. I wouldn't be surprised at all. But you never know. You never know. It just maybe it'll be a three hour movie. Who knows? But I mean, it would it would be smarter. I suppose it would be better. You know, financially speaking, to do two. But uh, you know, they love their trilogies. You know what I mean? They love the idea of trilogies. So who knows? We'll see though. We'll see. Speaking of movies that were released in 2018. Anything really stand out to you this year? Not yet. Not yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not. Uh, it, it, it's not really uh, been a year so far that's captured my imagination. I've probably told you that I'm not, you know, I've just grown tired of the comic book genre. You know, nothing against it. People love it. It's just for me. I just feel like I've just seen so much CG of these people or characters or animated characters, I really should say, doing what they do that it no longer gets me that excited. You know, I just haven't, nothing this year so far, and I know there's a lot of interesting films still to come, obviously, looking forward to Alfonso Cuaron's movie, Rome, that he did in black and white down in Mexico should be pretty great because he's always great. I don't know if Scorsese's movie comes out this year or not. I want to. I want to say it does. This is the, the the Netflix one, Kill the Irishman, or yeah, yeah, yeah the Nero and Pacino. Yeah. I feel like it should be this year, but I don't know. I I think that um, you know, the Coen Brothers have a movie coming out, I, and I think that they're obviously in the fall. Those releases speak more to me than the summer releases do. So so far this year, and I have to be honest with you, nothing has gotten me. I'm uh, very excited, and uh, yeah. There was Sorry. a the last time you were on the show. There was a movie you or uh, we were talking, and I don't know if it was on the actual episode or if it was after we were done recording. But I think we were both in agree that we were looking forward to seeing the Happy Time Murders. Yes, and um, I just recently saw it in the theater. It was, it was, and this is again this this episode is not about film review, but it's it's important to discuss because I think you know we were talking before we started recording. It's important to discuss why I had such a problem with the movie. And uh, I mentioned that I thought on a visual level, the movie was really unique in how it integrated puppets, CGI, and real world settings to make it a very believable world. But 
I didn't find any of the characters charismatic in the least. I was thoroughly disappointed with the movie because that was one that I really, really, I think, wanted to love because it was it, it, it went against type of every other movie that was being released in the summertime. Well, I think also puppeteering, like in-camera puppeteering, is just so much fun to watch. And um, I got to work with the Henson people on a commercial for several days once, and it was just so much fun. I mean, so creative and special. And, and And I think that the whole Muppet thing, even though I know this isn't a technically a Muppet movie, although Henson's son was, was made it. I think there's just still something quite magical about those. So then to think of that thrown into kind of a hard R rated environment, you know, tough talking, you know, kind of detective drama kind of thing. Look, it was a really fun idea. And the trailer was really funny. But, and I, I, I then read the reviews when it came out and I have to say the, refu- the reviews dissuaded me from seeing it because I just it just unfortunately reviews were not very good. And and I, I, I you were telling me so your, your thing was, is that the characters were just kind of unlikable and watchable. That was my thing. It was it, and there was a 2012. The movie Ted came out, which was about a, a magical talking teddy bear. And that's a hard R rated film that I just laughed my ass off in the theater even though even though several people several people in my theater walked out because i don't think they were prepared for just how hard our yeah. movie was i wanted that magic again and within the first 15 minutes of the happy time murders i wasn't connecting and this is crazy this is the, the way i'm saying it. i wasn't connecting with some of the puppets on screen see you know it's, well, the character's a character i yeah. mean you know whether it's in a, in a pixar movie i mean one of the most pathetic characters of you know the last 10 or more years is wally Yep. You know, you he's a little CG robot and you, you know, you love the guy and you root for him, you know, Eva, Eva, you know, you want him to succeed and be with Eva and the whole thing. And and I think that whether it's a puppet or an animated character or a live action human being, you know, I think the characterization on the whole is is kind of the weak link in filmmaking today. You know, you have iconic characters who kind of represent good and evil and and uh you sometimes come up with like an original kind of anti-hero like you know deadpool and and you know ant-man has its own tone and and the but i think that it's like characterization is really people care about people and so uh, you know whether it's again it doesn't matter if it's a puppet or, or an animated character it's people care about characters is maybe a better way to say it and i think that uh not a lot of screen time is devoted toward developing character. Um, there's a lot of events. There's a lot of plot. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of set pieces. Not necessarily um, in a Muppet movie. But I think that you it, you have to take minutes, collective minutes out of your movie to develop character moments. When you don't and you just go from sequence to sequence to sequence to sequence – uh, you get numb. Yeah. You know, the viewer just gets numb and you're just, you're watching giant action sequences or a series of jokes maybe in, in that film. And you're kind of like, I don't care. And that's the biggest problem I have watching movies today is I'm just like, I don't care about any of these people. 
I'm watching it and I'm just not engaged by by the people or characters, let's say. The pedigree of the movie also had me excited because one of, uh, as a child of the 80s, The Dark Crystal is one of my all-time favorite yeah. films. And you want to talk about puppeteering done on a monumental scale sure. and, and, and characters that I recently watched the movie not too long ago. Characters you actually care about. Characters you're afraid of. You know, the, the Skeksis yeah. were, were terrifying to me as a child and, and still a little bit give me the willies a little bit as, a, as an adult. So, I mean, I was really, I, I just have to tell you, like, I was really disappointed. And, and it's it's a shame. It's a shame because I think on a technical level, the movie looked really good. Yeah, I mean, look at these, look at these mo- movies in the top 10. So you've got Black Panther, which, you know, was original and not a retread of anything anyone had seen before. And it's the number one movie of the year. Avengers is a retread of characters we've seen. Incredibles 2, retread of characters we've seen. Jurassic World, retread. Deadpool 2, retread. Solo, retread. Ant-Man, retread. Mission Impossible, retread. Number 10 is Hotel Transylvania right now, but it's Hotel Transylvania 3. And then the big surprise in the whole list is A Quiet Place, number 9. So, oh, that's domestic grosses, by the way. That I just that I just listed. So that's actually not that's not all that's not all time. You're looking at eight out of ten of those movies are all characters that have already been developed. We already know who they are. We already have our opinions about them and our feelings about them. So they don't spend time in those movies developing who they you know what makes them tick any longer because you don't you know that's why the first Iron Man was so interesting because Robert Downey Jr. gets thrown into that cave and you get to see him create Iron Man. You get to see him become that guy and you get to see him work out how to use the costume. I know that's not what it's called. The suit of whatever armor or whatever the deal is. But it was good and it was fun and it was funny and it was engaging and and because you got to watch his his character develop as well as his kind of uh, superhero persona. I think that once you get past those things, it gets harder and harder and harder to come up with interesting ways to stay engaged with characters you already know. And that's a big problem in the big, big successful movies now is that because they're not original, you already know what you're getting. I think they're less engaging on a character and emotional level, and then it just becomes kind of spectacle and plot is really what drives the majority of those those films. Not all, not all, but the majority. There was one movie this summer that I... I... I essentially race to the theater to go see and it's the sixth one in the series and that's the the new mission impossible movie and and maybe it's because i have a fondness for practical versus cgi effects but i went and saw the movie and and for what it was i i had a great time at the movies i enjoyed it i was there was a lot of wow moments because you know that they're they're really doing these stunts yeah my question is threefold one did you see the movie Two, what are your thoughts on the franchise as, as a whole? And three, is this the new James Bond franchise? Well, yes, I did go see the movie. And just after the incredible chase through the streets of Paris, we got a text that my son was throwing up. My seven-year-old son was throwing up back at home. And our high school babysitter was not sure what to do. So my wife and I had to run out of the cinema oh, no. <laughs> and, and go rescue our little guy and and get him taken care of so i saw half the movie and i also was really enjoying it it's kind of silly to go back and pay for the second half so i'll probably just wait for the for the blu-ray to to i always see things in blu-ray i don't do them on 
on HBO because they don't do the correct aspect ratio, which I will never understand why HBO does not letterbox their movies in the correct aspect ratio. It's bizarre. So when I get the Blu-ray, I'll finish it up. But I I definitely saw enough of it to understand why it got the reviews it's di- it did and why people were enjoying it. What you've got there of what I saw was just incredibly efficient filmmaking. You've just got a really tightly tooled machine. Uh, everyone understands their characters. You know, I, I could see they were setting up something in the past with this, with Michelle Monaghan. I, I, they set her up in the beginning for a good reason, right? Because I'm sure she comes back in the second half. Plus, I saw her at the, all the red carpet stuff and photographs. So I figured if she's showing up the red carpet, she didn't have one flashback scene up front. <laughs> and I think that that in his dream, but I, I, I think that you've got, con- I think you've got Simon Pegg in there for comedy. You know, I think that you've got some, you know, some characters that Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg keep it fun and funny. The villain is the villain, right? But I, but I think that, and I think having, having Superman in there with his, with his mustache, which I have to say, when they wouldn't shave off his mustache for the for the DC film, I was like, what a bunch of jerks. Come on, man. How hard is it? Give him a, you know, I think it's a little harder to take away a mustache from a guy's lip than to add a mustache. You know, throughout film history, people have been adding mustaches and that. But then when I saw the film, I was kind of like, that's a pretty badass mustache. <laughs> that, that mustache helped that guy. I can see what I was kind of like, nah, I think now I'm siding with the Mission Impossible team. I don't think I'd have touched that mustache. And, you know, plus they were under no obligation to do so with a competitor. But I, I, I know that they were pretty upset over there at Warner's that they wouldn't that they wouldn't uh, shave it off. And, oh, my God, did they take heat for that visually? It's not as easy as it looks, gang, creating skin where there is no skin uh, in close ups. So, oh, my God, can you imagine being on the set with like shooting him in his Superman gear and the whole thing? And there's that freaking mustache and you just wanted to sneak. I was thinking I would have like, you know. A very small dose, a very small dose of a sleeping pill, a little Ambien, snuck into his trailer, shaved that thing off, snuck back out and been like, I have no idea what happened. It must have been a rabbit fan. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. This is terrible. So I just think that you had something fun going on. And I think you had the fun women in there. Although, what was she called? The White Witch or the White, what was she called? Oh, my God. I've already seen the movie. The not the White Widow, no, no. The White Widow, White Widow. White, White, okay. I was like, White Widow, really? Come on, guys. As soon as you kept calling her, it wasn't like they go, she's the White Widow, but we will call her Charlene. I was like, White Widow, White Widow, White Widow, the White Widow, the White. I'm like, oh my God, please God, stop calling her the White Widow. Um, it's just so. I thought that was just out of the tone of the film, but um, small, a small quit, a small quibble. But anyway. Is it the next James Bond? Mm, I don't know about that because Bond is its own thing. Now, obviously, Bond is struggling to find its director. And, you know, there's the thing of Daniel Craig would rather kill himself than play James Bond and all this stuff. But there's something like Bond is Bond and Mission Impossible is Tom Cruise. And I think the staying power of Bond is that there have been four or five God, I lost track with Lazenby and, you know, I mean— Bonds. Are there going to be five more Ethan Hunts? No, I don't think so. I think, again, we're back to the Han Solo thing. There was one Han Solo. And I think there's one Ethan Hunt, and that's going to be Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise will probably be playing the guy till he's 80, right? You know, because yeah. he's, uh, you know, he'll be 80 going on 37. But I don't think, like, you're going to see 
in our lifetime, someone take over that franchise for, for Tom Cruise. They, they'll try, believe me. Like they'll, they, but who knows what it'll even be in the 20 years it's going to take to move him off that franchise. I mean, Harrison Ford's still going to play Indiana Jones, and Harrison Ford is what? Heading toward 70? I don't know. He's 75, I think. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. So, see, I already I think of him as younger, but 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 he's still going to get out there and play Harrison Ford. So why couldn't why couldn't Tom Cruise at the same age? And I'm sure he will if he wants to. But you're not going to replace Indiana Jones. You're not going to replace Han Solo. You're not going to replace uh, Ethan Hunt. And yet the Bond franchise are already talking about who the next Bond is going to be. And hell, they haven't even filmed the one they've got. It's weird. So Bond is it's a very unique thing and that people accept that the actors are interchangeable to the character. Granted, some are better than others, but I grew up, you know, the Roger Moore ones and I went and saw the spy who loved me and I had a great old time. I was a kid, but I loved it. I didn't know he wasn't as good as Sean Connery. You know, you just go. I've never, you know, in five, I'm coming up on the fifth anniversary of this podcast in November and I have never talked about James Bond. So if you'll indulge me just for a few minutes, I, I, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm curious, is Daniel Craig so set against playing James Bond because he has a acting career beyond that character, whereas the like of the Roger Moore's, Pierce Brosnan's, I mean, they're, they're so identified as that character. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, why does he why is he so disdained to the idea or let me say that again why he's so opposed to the idea of playing James Bond because he's been art in arguably two of the better James Bond films with Skyfall and Casino Royale I'm just curious your yep. thoughts on that well I can't read his mind sure but I yeah. can read what he says and I think that he doesn't love the character I think that he has to play a guy he doesn't really love the way he treats women. He doesn't really love that he's kind of misogynistic and and that he's kind of macho man, that he's kind of who Bond is. You know, I mean, Bond is anachronistic in our time. There's no question, which is kind of interesting that he is, right? And I think he plays it that way. I think he plays it like tortured and, and knowing he's a dinosaur. I think that's part of what makes his performance so interesting. Um, so I think one thing is what I get from it, and I just read this very, very recently, was that when uh, Danny Boyle dropped out, you know, is that I just think that he doesn't really love what Bond stands for. Whereas who can't love what Indiana Jones stands for, right? right? You know, I'm an archaeologist. I'm a professor. You know, I'm this kind of I crack a whip. I don't even use a gun. You know what I mean? Like hey, you're like, who don't want to be that guy? But I think Bond is always like grabbing girls and throwing them up against the wall. <laughs> having his way with them. And I think he struggles with that just as an actor. Um, that's the feeling I get. Number two, you cannot imagine the toll it takes making those movies. Oh my God. It, it is, I mean, just think of the, the rigging, the safety, the jumping from the helicopter, the fight on the train, the crashing of that plane in the snow, like that stuff, it is so slow because it's dangerous. And you can't rush it. And it isn't acting driven. At the end of the day, he's like behind the wheel of that plane going, and they're shaking the camera and they're shaking the thing. It isn't like he's doing Shakespeare. You know what I mean? It isn't. I mean, I bet he had more fun doing, oh, God, I'm going to blank on it, the Bank Heist movie for Soderbergh where he got to play that crazy kook in the backseat. You know what I mean? I'm sure he had a blast with that character, right? And by the way, it's funny as hell in that movie. It's a great movie. (laughs) Logan Lucky. Yes, that movie's a little underrated movie. That movie is funny and fun, and uh, I don't know. Like again, it kind of breaks my heart that there isn't a place for that in the in the box office 
of theatrical runs anymore. And 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 yet I I have to say I was entertained by that. I really entertained by that movie. And I thought Daniel Craig was so freaking funny. And I'm sure he had. I'm sure if you say I want to go do Bond or play that guy again, I bet you I will put money down how quickly he'd say I want to play the lucky guy again, the Logan Lucky guy. So you know, actors like that fun. They like to chew it up. They like to perform. It's like you know when I worked with Gary Oldman. You know, look, you know he loves to just go for it and go. You know, the, Gary's like go big or go home. And look at you know look at his great performances. They're all like that. And I and I think that. Bond is cool and suave, and he's always like, oh, I don't think so. Uh, I'll be having my way with you now. Come over here. And it's not that much fun to be that guy. And it takes forever, and you're waiting for your stunt double to do his thing. There's like four different units going at once. It's a giant machine. And I really think actors generally prefer intimate, performance-driven moments. And I don't think there's a whole lot of that going on in Bond. Craig is a real actor. Craig is not a action hero. He's a real actor and he knows he is. And he's like, so I'm going to take nine months, take a slot. I understand that it fuels, you know, that's the fuel in my engine in terms of my career. And also I'm sure financially, et cetera, et cetera. But he's probably like, I got enough money. I mean, they paid me on the other ones. I, you know, he's seems happily married. He's got Rachel Wise, right? I mean, it's all, he just, they just had a baby. I think, I think he's probably like, why? God. I mean, he's human, right? To us, it's like, holy shit, you get to be James Bond. What's wrong with you? Well, he's done it three times. And Mendes is out now, and you got to get a new director, and you got to get in sync with that guy. And he's probably excited by Boyle because Boyle is at least a really kind of unique vision. Well, apparently his vision was so unique, he wanted to kill James Bond or something like that. So they booted him out. So they're like, and he didn't like his cat. So it's really tough to thread that needle, even on something that seems like a program, you know, like like pre-programmed. And um, so I think all of that probably, that's my very long-winded answer to the, the kind of the, I have sympathy for him. I get it. You know, I think that even, you're even hearing cracks in the armor of the Avengers. Guys kind of like going, the Thor guy is kind of going, how many more times am I going to play this guy? I don't know. Robert Downey Jr. has been reluctant. I mean, they probably, you know, what does Downey show up for three, four weeks on these shows and shoots his green screen stuff and goes home? I mean, these guys are starting to get a little bored, I think, with playing these straight ahead, not very complicated characters. Because we're back to what I said about characterization, whereas the greatest thing to play is, is is watching a character come to life for an actor. The not so great thing to play is the same thing they do again and again and again. It's just not that challenging. I want to talk about one other movie in 2018 because on paper, I should not have liked this movie at all. It mm. is a movie that is almost 100% CGI. Ooh. But I went, I went to the theater in March and sat down and saw Mr. Spielberg's latest film. Yeah. And I was expecting, like I said, I went in with the lowest of low expectations, being one of the biggest Spielberg fans I know in my group of friends. That being said, I really, really enjoyed that movie. I, it, it, the first 10 minutes of it was very frenetic and very, uh, it took me a minute to settle into it. And I, I, I think I was bit by the nostalgia bug more than anything else watching that movie. I can admit that now, having seen it later, having seen it a couple times now. I was surprised by how much I how much fun I had watching that movie. Well, here's the thing is that nobody nobody out there is Steven Spielberg. Right. Just the way it is. People can say whatever they want to say. It's like, you know, talking about 
Michael Jordan or, you know, Muhammad Ali or whoever you want to talk about. It's like Steven Spielberg is Steven Spielberg, period. He does things in ways that just nobody else does. And even in a, you know, 80% CG film, he still creates angles and movement and staging and layer upon layer. I mean, that car chase with King Kong is just a complete showstopper. And what I always say about Spielberg is imagine if you put, uh, hey, Phil Giovanno's name on that movie or Joe Blow's name on that movie or some second or third time director's name on that movie, the response, you know, would be pretty interesting, wouldn't it? Because we just expect it from Spielberg and you take it for granted and you kind of say, well, he's Spielberg. But if you could be objective, which you can't, about, about the filmmaking, the guy just, it's, you know, He's pretty unstoppable. That whole final sequence, you know, uh, trying to save the day and get across the thing thing. I don't know what all that stuff's called. But the thing I feel about it is, is that it's animation and that that really what CG is, is flat out animation. It's no different from a Pixar movie. It's no different. You know, it's just it's just polished to look more photo real. And the Pixar movies don't attempt total photorealism, although God are they beautiful? But, you know, they're, they're trying to trick you into thinking these things exist in a real world. Although Ready Player One didn't try that hard because it's supposed to be kind of a VR video game. So so clearly, like, you know, the avatars and all that were not meant to be photoreal. I mean, so that, I mean, um, which, which was tough because then not only are you not, it's like you've got live action mixed in with CG, which isn't trying to be like live action, which is trying to be like VR, but it's not really VR because you're watching it on a, in a, in a square box and a, and a proscenium in a theater. Now I did not see it 3d. So to me, it gets a discount. Like it kind of gets the double discount because it's animation. And what I love about Steven Spielberg, and I've talked to you about this before is his staging in live action. I love what he does with the camera. I love what he does with actors. I love what he does with lighting. I love how he moves, reveals, cuts. I, per, I So I really, when I get excited about Steven's work, I get excited about it in the live action realm. Mm. I, my hat is totally off to what he achieved in Reddit Player One. I mean, I was just like, you're done. I mean, how can you not just be like, whether you like the movie or not, you're not questioning the direction. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the guy has total freaking control over every frame and it's mind-blowing to me that he's doing that while he's also making the post you know so you just kind of go what but that's spielberg so you you uh i mean that's literally like you know playing baseball and football at the same time right i mean two totally different and by the way like excelling at both so uh, it, it, it it to me it's mind-blowing but it doesn't get me going quite as much as, you know, whether it's Saving Private Ryan or, you know, Jaws or I could go on on our Close Encounters or, you know, uh, even The Post, you know, in the sense that I like watching those list, a masterpiece, you know, it, 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 you know, watching him work with actors and watching him work with the camera and the technique of filmmaking in a more realistic environment is my is the most exciting thing for me with Steven. So while I enjoyed it, it doesn't necessarily hit all the check all the Spielberg boxes for me. And you make a good point. It wasn't a CG film. It was an animated film. It was an animated mm-hmm. Spielberg film. So, mm-hmm. so you know. Yeah, like he did like, and I, like Tintin. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he did another one. And the BFG is, is quite a bit of that. 
You know, so, I mean, I think that he, you know, he's done it and he does it well. Um, I just like it when he's in a real space with, with, you know, in a real world trying to work out the geometry of filmmaking in the real world is really interesting and challenging because you've got to work people into environments in, in unique ways. And he does it incredibly well. I mean, the Coens do it incredibly well. Paul Thomas Anderson does it incredibly well. You know, it goes on and on. But when in CG, you just realize, like, you know, it does it really well. Bob Zemeckis. So you look at flight and you look at that sequence in the plane. That's all from the inside of the plane. Yeah. Okay. So people go back, take a look at that opening, that sequence, the plane crash. It's all from inside the plane. What? Who chooses to get your most exciting, scary, mind-blowing sequence in the movie that sets up everything else all from inside the plane? It's out of his mind, and it's incredible. So he's in a cockpit, in a fuselage, and he can do it. So, and granted, there's CG trickery within that, but the point still is, it's meant to, it's the real world. And I think that that, that those challenges, uh, to me, and maybe it's because, I don't know, maybe it's because I know, know the tricks. You know, maybe it's because I've been behind the curtain. Those challenges are the ones that really excite me. Whereas I know on a computer, you say, tilt up, tilt down, swing around, zoom out, fly over, go up high, go down low, fly through their legs, zip around, do a loop-de-loop, come back around. It's just the computer can, you know, once the environment's created, you can move through that virtual world and put the camera virtually anywhere you want. It's just, to me, yes, it's hard to do and keep interesting. It's hard to keep geography. It's hard. to. It's hard. I mean, you can see that because people fail at it all the time. But it's still not the same as getting out there. That's why I always come back to Apocalypse Now. I mean, you would never, ever make that movie without CG now. Yeah. yeah. Yet, go look at it. That's all in camera. And it's mind-blowing. During the uh, Mission Impossible, when I saw it in the theater in IMAX, they showed an exclusive clip from Damien Chazelle's new f film, First Man. Mm. And it was it was an exclusive IMAX clip. And it was I'm reminded of this when you're talking about flight, because it was Neil Armstrong in, in the capsule during a launch. And I, I guess it was really to show off what this movie was going to look like and sound like, more importantly, in IMAX. And it was white knuckle five minutes i'm in my seat just just being blown away and i'm wondering your is this is this film on your list of anticipated films that are coming out absolutely yeah oh uh, what a departure I, from la la land yeah i have well i'm extremely jealous let's start out that way because i have i have frame prints from the moon landings in my home from a great, great book called Moon, if anyone wants to check it out, with with all these uh, beautifully scanned shots from all the various moon landings. And I have like four or five of those framed. Um, I have every book on, on the Apollo program. Look, let's put it this way. I have the uh, Apollo uh, Saturn Lego set. Okay. And I, I did not buy it for my children. Uh, <clears throat> it was just released about a year ago. And um, it's awesome. It's like four feet tall, the Saturn rocket. It is one of my favorite subjects ever. I was, I think, eight years old in the moon landing. I saw it live. And on our, our little TV, little black and white image of, of Armstrong stepping onto the moon. Um, I was obsessed as a kid with all of it. Um, all the great life magazine articles about it anyway. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. And it just, 
it, uh, I'm sure it'll be great. Well, I'm going to have to ask you to join me when I do my Apollo 13 episode on the history of, of that film, because that's on the list of films to do. I just mm. recently took a trip down to the Cape because it's about an hour and 20 minute drive from where I live. And yeah. uh, have you ever been there? No, I, I uh, no, I've uh, tried and uh, been thwarted on several occasions that I was I was trying to get there. You'll let me know when you finally do make it there. I'll meet you yeah. there. So because it's yeah. it's incredible. So, yeah. So let's go. Let's talk a little bit about shifting gears just for a moment, but keeping with news that have happened, keeping with news that has happened in 2018. This one was a bit of a head scratcher for a lot of people. And I this one was really the inspiration for me to contact you and say, Phil, I'm, I'm ready to talk business of film 2018. And this is the Academy's decision to make a few changes to the uh, to the broadcast, if you will, to tight, kind of tighten it up, keep it under three hours offers i mean present some awards during the commercial breaks okay sure but what got everybody talking was the introduction of a new award for a best achievement in popular film and i don't know if there's a precedent set for this going back through the history of the academy awards so i don't i don't want to sound like i don't know what i'm talking about but this one seems really out of place, and I'm just wondering your thoughts on all the decisions that they've made to make some changes, from shortening the uh, the the actual broadcast to awards during the commercial break, and of course, best popular film. Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let me grab a Dr Pepper for yeah. this. <laughs> all right. I gotta well, le- listen. I gotta leave that line in. By the way, I'm th- th- I gotta <laughs> grab a Dr Pepper. <laughs> Right here, pointing in. I uh, there we go. And Phil, I completely understand that watching the Academy Awards for you, especially growing up, was was the Super Bowl for you. So, so I really curious about your the thought, the changes. I think starting somewhere in junior high school, my my family always put on a Academy Awards party. So I corralled all my friends, my sisters corralled their friends, and we would have 20, 30 people over to our house crammed into the living room. We'd move the TV into the corner and everyone would hoot and holler and we'd have ballots and vote and there'd be a prize and the whole thing. So, and I really cared about who won. I mean, I would have a, you know, I'd have a a film I was rooting for and actors I was rooting for and and it was a big, it was, it was a big deal. Now I uh, don't watch the show. So I haven't watched the show for, for several years. To me, uh, what happened was, and I think this new category pretty much proves this theory, is that it just became a marketing tool to promote films for the studios. And I think it all changed when Harvey Weinstein figured out a way to you know, kind of quote unquote buy an award and create campaigns and go to older members of the academy and host parties and host screenings and, you know, meet and greets, you know, that was a big, anyone wants to go kind of Google the, uh, you know, what you have to do to win an Oscar. And particularly if you're kind of on the cusp, particularly if it's a close race, what they put these actors through, what they put these directors through. I have lots of friends who've been nominated. I never expect to be nominated. I never will be nominated. So nothing I'm, I'm saying here really matters to anyone in the Academy uh, or in the film business for that matter. But as a fan of movies and of high quality movies in particular, I thought 
that the Academy Awards were meant to represent the highest end end of, you know, the filmmaking as an art form. And I don't really believe in uh, pitting artists against each other, you know, I, in terms of best, who's best, you know, who is best, Picasso, Cezanne, Degas, Renoir. Oh, and then there's, you know, this, this new upstart, Vincent Van Gogh. Let's see how he does this season in the competition for best artist. And I, I, I think that that is really silly. And I don't think any of the artists feel all that comfortable being pitted against each other as quote, winners and losers. I think it's nice that and that and that that evolved over years of, of of being in the business and meeting these people and hearing what they had to go through and working with some of these people that have been nominated and won awards um, and, uh, and in all categories, too. Um, I've worked with a lot of Academy Award winners and nominees. It's, it's actually a pretty painful process they go through, including winning is not often what you think it's cracked up to be. So. Really, I think um, it began my my, dis, my disenfranchisement with the with the Academy Awards in particular began when they opened it up to ten best pictures. So that's when I pretty much stopped watching because that's when they just said, "Look, we need to just get a bunch of films in here because unfortunately, the five films we keep nominating, not enough people are going to." Well, isn't that if you're if it's going to be about marketing and promoting an art form, that's good. That's good that you're you're getting. Uh, what was it Moonlight, right? right? Yeah. Sorry. So isn't that a good thing? You're getting people to know about Moonlight. But when they opened it up to ten, it was just an open admission that they needed that that it was really about ratings, and that it was really about promoting the already more successful films by including those more successful films. I'm sure under the pressure and behest of the major studios. Um, particularly given that the vast majority of the smaller films are not made by the majors or made by a, a, a subdivision of the majors, you know, like Fox Searchlight. But still, the majors want their big investments promoted. And here's the stage where, you know, mil- millions of people watch. I don't, you know, I don't know what's like what the numbers are now, but around 20 million, and that, you know, and then worldwide is there's a big number as well. And on top of that, so. It just became diluted. I also think that while it was always a fashion show, it became more and more about that. And while it was always supposed to be about talent, I think it became more and more about celebrity, which is just part of where our culture has gone. I mean, that's not that's not the Academy's not to blame for that. And now here we are. So they add this most popular. Well, first, my question is, how do you even define that? As many people have asked. Is it biggest box office? So we're going to say we're going to have a category where the top five box office films will just automatically get in. And then you get to vote for one of those. So, so far this year would be Avengers, Black Panther, Jurassic World, Incredibles, and Deadpool 2. So, so far this year, those would be the five. They're they're the top five, at least uh, worldwide. And I assume worldwide is what they're after, right? They want that worldwide market. And then I just think, do I just call it the People's Choice Awards? Why don't you just – and I, I think it's pretty cynical too to think that suddenly by adding those five films in, you're going to get, oh, oh my god, millions more people are going to watch. It's going to go from 20 million to 45 million overnight because you added those five films in. 
And because you dump best short film, you know, or best documentary um, off the off the show, maybe they will. We'll find out uh, next year. But I just don't get it. I just, you know, it changes. It, look, we've all known that the criteria has changed for what an Oscar represents. But now it's just a just a a flat out admission, open public admission. That it's about box office, it's about popularity, it's about marketing, and ultimately, what does it all boil down to? It's about money, which should not be a shock to anyone, including me, but I guess you kind of think that, or at least I used to think that the whole purpose of the thing was to promote artistic quality, and, I'd, I, I, and I know that people still vote with that in mind, and I know that a lot of films are fantastic art, artistic merit are nominated. I'm not saying it, it's, it's gone, but I think the shift in focus is pretty radical and silly and just, just freaking, I mean, you know what I would do? I swear to God, if I was like dictator of the Academy, I would cancel the show. I would turn it into a private affair and I would make it, you know, back down to the five, back down to the way it should be. You know, yeah, you'd announce the awards in the press and all that later, but people would get to come in, you know, it would just be the nominees and their guests and the members of the Academy and uh, maybe more of a dinner like they used to do for the Oscars, which is what the, the Golden Globes do, which is why the Globes are more entertaining. I would I would make it, you know, I would I would I would go the exact opposite way. I would make it special again by not making it public, by not making it um, about ratings and, and, and money and making it legitimately about artistic merit, I would kill the show. A couple things here. One, is it a coincidence that Disney owns the network that airs the Oscars? Hmm. I would think not. Okay. Is it possible for a new award? I'm not talking about the Oscars, but a, a new, I'm just saying what you just described sounds wonderful. Is it possible to hand out a different type of accolade for artistic merit? Can someone start that? Can someone, or is it too late to get something like that off the ground? Well, I think the Spirit Awards kind of are that a little bit. I mean, I think that if you ask people like which is kind of cooler and which is more fun and which is, you know, kind of in a weird way, just on kind of the, on, a, on the street level, more entertaining for the performers and for the writers and directors and producers. I think the independent spirit awards are kind of that. And I think that they obviously, I mean, I have some issues with what they call independent anymore, where you're kind of like, uh, that was financed by a major studio. That movie really wasn't all that independent. Granted, they only gave them four or 5 million to make it, you know, or, but in some cases, 18, 20 million to make it. And I granted it was a small movie, that didn't get a big release, but I've always kind of wondered how they defined independent uh, over there. But setting that aside, I think that I do think it's too late and here's why. I mean, it's never too late for anything. But the reason why I think it's too late in terms of theatrical is that, you know, we're moving toward the theatrical release for films becoming more and more limited to major tentpole movies. And yes, there will always be, let's call it the off-Broadway productions. There will always be people who get their films in theaters. And, and again, what's really funny, I mean, you look at this stuff. Uh, for instance, Alfonso Cuaron's movie was, was financed by Netflix. And, you know, so here's this guy who did Gravity, Children of Men, 
et cetera, et cetera. He's a great filmmaker, but it's Netflix financed him, not a studio to do this black and white movie set in Mexico. So it's going to go on Netflix and they're going to give him a theatrical so he has a chance to be nominated. But it's not because the audience is clamoring for a black and white movie about Mexico in the theaters is because they know as a marketing tool, getting those awards nominations and possibly wins will add to the box office and or views on Netflix and will help legitimize the Netflix network of filmmakers and filmmaking. Um, I should and product, really. So we're moving away. Disney creating this Disney now, whatever they're going to call it. Although I do find it so hysterical that they don't own the rights to all the past Star Wars movies. That is just so kind of ironic and funny. They just got to be kicking themselves over that deal. But anyway, they'll get them back eventually, but not soon. Um, and now without paying a lot of money, which they do have. And Disney absorbing Fox and AT&T absorbing Warner's. I mean, we're just looking at, you know, I think a lot of these films in this 2018 list in 10 years will be on streaming services. A lot of the middle class. It just won't make sense to to get them theatrically unless they think they have awards potential and they'll put them out for a week, whatever the rule is at that time. And uh, so really the Academy Awards in terms of theatrical kind of boosting the theatrical prospects for smaller films is going to shrink because those smaller films are going to end up on streaming. They're going to end up at Apple. They're going to end up at Amazon. They're going to end up at Netflix, which is already happening. So and we're just the tip of the iceberg on that. Literally, they're very, very, very early stages. So, you know, in fact, you know, they, they I think they even said that Fox Searchlight, I think they even, I, I want to say Iger even said at Disney that like Fox Searchlight, for instance, will be creating product like HBO does for their streaming, that they will not, I, I'm pretty sure you can dig that up, that he said in the last conference call um, last quarter that that uh, Fox Searchlight will exist, but for their streaming service to create high quality content for specifically for that, because he's saying to himself, I'm not going to like spend my marketing distribution money for these little films. I'm going to put them straight on my, I need content and I need original content and who better than searchlight to do it or FX, which they're also taking over. There is some great original movies on Netflix that don't get theatrically released. There's some great original movies that are coming out on Amazon. Yep. Well, What's what's the big award for them? Is it the Golden Globes? Is it the Emmys? I mean, how, what do, what do those original movies even qualify for? Do we know? Well, <clears throat> if they don't get a, I think there's like a one week in New York, LA kind of rule for the Academy. So if they do that, they're qualified for the Oscars. If Emmys don't have like a one off theatrical category, Golden Globes, I suppose, is probably the same qualifications as for the Oscars. But look for that all to shift and adjust. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, look for all that. I mean, Netflix pulled out of the Cannes Film Festival over disputes over what's a movie and what's not a movie. You know, Spielberg came out and said it's got to be a theatrical movie, not a streaming movie. Um, but you've got way too many talented filmmakers gravitating. In fact, I think the Coen Brothers movie made even this financed by Netflix. I thought I read. I, I could be wrong on that. But I think, you know, so I just think you've just got because, again, the big Everyone's looking at every studio. If I was running a studio and I wanted to keep my job, I'd be looking at what Disney's doing too. And the tent poles are what are 
making you money. And the other films, so like, for instance, you go to, it's interesting, I was just clicking earlier, you go to Universal, and you've got Jurassic Park at $1.3 billion, right? The next one, their next movie is Fifty Shades Freed at three seventy one. Mama Mia, 366, Skyscraper, which I'm sure they had higher hopes for at 293, Pacific Rim, 290, Insidious, 167, The Purge, 134, Truth or Dare, 94, Blockers, 93, and Breaking In, 50. That is just does not compare. Their average is 316 a movie. What do we say Disney's was? 800? Yeah. yeah. Boom. They're all going, why? Why am I killing myself? Just do Jurassic Parks if I can figure out how to do that, which Disney has through acquisitions. And again, it just must kill them that they just acquired Fox, too, because now they've got X-Men and now they've got Wolverine. They've got everything now. I mean, not everything, but they've got you know everything but Spider-Man, really. Even Sony acquiesced and brought him in on Spider-Man, right? Yep. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could see a totally new award show just for on uh, just for streaming movies. So that's not out of the realm of possibility. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it on a streaming service. Yeah, like a YouTube or a, or, or a YouTube. Just yeah. say, say, you know, uh, it's going to be on Amazon. Yeah. It's going to be on. It's going to be on Netflix. Create our own show. Stream it live. They have all the technology to do it and all the money to do it. Yeah. So maybe. you know, so so you don't know. You know, we. I think that we're in a. Listen again. I, I don't have any. For, I, unfortunately, I don't think anything I'm saying is brand new, <laughs> but we're in a major transition in the entertainment industry, a filmed entertainment industry, if not the entire entertainment industry, you know, from television to films to, to movies. Look, look what's going on with documentaries, which is a fantastic occurrence. Yeah. I mean, just look what streaming services have done for documentaries. That is so amazing. It's so great. You know, so there's always kind of unintended consequences that come out of it. And and uh, so I just think that you're going to have the Oscars are caught in the middle. That's the problem is that the one the popular films used to also be the award winners. But now the popular films are not the award winners. So they're trying to figure out how do we get the popular films in here? Um, and, and then it kind of like changes the whole mission, I think, of, of the what the Academy Awards uh, started out to be. And I, but I think that what's really going to be interesting is to see, because they're all they're after, man. I'm telling you, all they're after is a ratings bump. They want more people to tune in. And if they get a significant amount of people to turn in over what they got last year, then then it, that's a success for them. It's interesting because for the first time in many years, I have no desire to tune in. So it's almost like, are, are they losing? Are they going to lose some of their core audience? It's going to be, and by the way, the, once those people, once those movies are announced and the criteria by which they're chosen is announced, this story is just barely even, you know, started. Interesting. I, I, it's going to be really interesting to see. And, you know, maybe they'll drop it. Maybe there'll be an experiment. And they'll try it for a couple of years and go, whoops, that's not. See, I just think they, if they were smart, and I understand that the Academy Awards and the licensing and you know pays for the academy that guy around the camera are you crazy if we shut down that show that's the only way we make money and da, 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 da. well then maybe you ought to shrink it you've got to shrink the whole thing does everything have to get bigger does everything have to get richer does everything have to just be more mega 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 maybe the idea is to shrink it and keep it more special has anyone ever thought of that you know it's 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 just an idea that they can't get benefactors to help keep the academy going is ridiculous. 
they don't need the income from that show. Yeah, maybe to pay a lot of people. But, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know their finances. But I just think bigger and more open and more, you know, more about popular culture and, and try, I just think it's pandering too. You're pandering to a crowd that actually doesn't even care about your damn awards. And, ali- the and alienating the crowd that does sort of care That's about it. Exactly. Literally. It's like, it's not knowing your audience. It's interesting. And yeah, the audience is shrinking for their show. Why? Because the amount of people who care about film as an art form has shrunk. Fine. Then that's just the natural state of things. All right. Now, before we wrap things up, I have been over since since I first talked to you a few years ago, I have been becoming more and more interested in the technical side of films. Mm. And I mean, that's and it's been a great thing. I've been been reading a lot more. I've been watching a lot more more videos and, and just trying to understand everything from simple camera shots to to blocking to to everything, just trying to understand how the magic happens. But recently, I have been reading more and more about, and and I'm sorry, listeners, we're going to get super tech techy here for a little bit here. So I hope I don't bore. I hope people aren't bored with this part of the conversation, but it's something I really want to know about, and that is frame rates for motion pictures. Right now, the standard frame rate is 24 frames per second. Mm-hmm. Peter Jackson famously filmed one of the Hobbit sequels at 48 frames per second, which I don't, re- I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall if it was as successful as he had anticipated it would be, the, re- mm-hmm. the reception. So I'd love to know what you think about 24 frames per second. And where do you think the future of that frame rate is going? I think 24 frames is here to stay. And uh, the reason I do is that it's not even uh, much of a discussion in uh, with 90 something percent of the cinematographers you'll work with, filmmakers you'll work with. It is the reason is, is that the motion blur that you get at 24 frames per second, let me for your viewers, let me back up a little bit. For 24 frames per second for your viewers, it's just like in a still camera. The camera stays open for 124th of a second. And if you've ever taken a picture with a a still camera, you know that 124th of a second, if your subject moves or if you move the camera, you're going to get quite a bit of blur. Uh, Generally speaking, 30th of a second, which would be the same as shooting at 30 frames per second, you get a little less blur. 60th, you probably get a fairly crisp, but they're not moving too fast. And it goes up and up and up from there. And uh, so, for instance, if you go shoot at 120 frames per second, you're shooting the equivalent of 120th of a second on a still camera, which will be a pretty crisp, all things considered, a pretty crisp image. Not like thousandth of a second, in, but um, which you can also shoot at nowadays, a uh, thousand frames per second if you wanted to. So what they do in filmmaking is you shoot at 24 frames per second and you get when an actor moves, walks, talks, runs, jumps, you get blur. And that blur from frame to frame to frame is what makes it look natural, particularly, by the way, on film. Film had a, had a very unique way of capturing uh, the movement in a, in a kind of softer, more natural manner than digital does. Uh, but that's not really the discussion we're having now, film versus digital. So, uh, But I think that film at 24 was actually superior to digital at 24, but the technology is pretty much caught up and, and you can't you can't really tell the difference. There's still something kind of ephemerally interesting about film, but um, that's for another podcast. And I think that, so what they do is at say 48 frames per second, as Peter Jackson did on the Hobbit movie, you shoot at 48 frames per second, 
and then you project it at 48 frames per second. So you're still, everyone's still, if you project it at 24 frames per second, I won't be walking in slow motion because um, the higher the frame rate, the more frames you're capturing, which equals slow motion. So now at 48 frames per second, if you project at 24, it's slow motion. If you project it at 60, it's even more slow motion. But if you match your projector at 48, which is what you shot it at, everything will, everyone will be moving naturally. But here's the difference. There's less motion blur. So you get a crisper image. And um, gosh, I want to say, what was it? The uh, like Billy's Long Walk Home by yeah. Uh, yeah. what was Ang that shot? Ang Lee's. Uh, Ang Lee's film was it sixty or was it forty eight? It was. It was up there. It was up there. So anyway, usually the reason to shoot why Jim Cameron's interested in it and why Peter Jackson's interested in it is that in, in when you shoot three D. The, the more crisp the image is, the more defined your three-dimensional kind of depth will be. Uh, the more blur in the image, the less depth you get in your 3D. So they are both obviously deeply invested and fascinated by 3D filmmaking, you know, and, and uh, so they're the ones that you hear talking the most about it because it serves uh, the 3d process and the studios kind of like let them explore it because, because you get obviously more money <laughs> for a, a, a 3d theatrical exhibition. And it nowadays, because you're not using film, you're not burning more film. You see, when you used to go 48 or 60 frames per second in film, you're using up more and more film because the film is going through the camera faster. Now with digital, the additional, the additional quote unquote footage is just, um, you know, storage space on a hard drive. So they're not as against shooting high frame. Back in the day, like for instance, when I made State of Grace and I was shooting my big shootout at 120 frames per second, they're freaking out because I mean, the film I was burning, I was just chugging through roll after roll after roll of film. But now you just switch it to 120 and no one says a word because it doesn't cost you any more or any less other than some hard drives, which they repurpose anyway. So here's the problem though, for live action, straight up theatrical uh, releases shot at 48 or 60 or anything, any higher frame rate, is that because the motion blur is reduced from 24 frames per second, which is the most natural, they just figured out that it was the most natural, look, because they experimented with all frame rates, it's kind of arbitrary, it was just based upon motion blur. That's how 24 got chosen, because uh, it looked natural to the human eye. The is that with a reduced motion blur, you get such a crisp image that a lot, a lot of people, and myself included, complain that it starts to look like video, that it starts to look like a, it's called the Spanish soap opera effect, where you get that super crisp, super contrasty you know, look of like you're looking at like, you know, those TVs, you go into Best Buy and they're cranked up really bright and it almost looks like you're looking at it. It looks like a mural. It looks weird. It doesn't have any of the the pastels and the colors and the, it just doesn't, it just, you know what I mean? It looks yeah. like video, video, like not great video fake. And that was a lot of the complaints with the Ang Lee film, a lot of the complaints with the Hobbit film if you, if you didn't see it in 3D. Um, if you saw it in 3D, you were like, whoa, the 3D was incredible. Although I heard, I did not see it in 3D, but what I read and heard from friends was that it still looked pretty crispy. And that's why it hasn't caught on. I mean, that Hobbit film was quite a while ago, and Cameron's been talking about this forever. You know, there's been IMAX versions of these things that they've tried. 
So if you want something to look super crisp, and that's like a choice you're making, but 99.999, I mean, really can't even think of hardly, those are the, I'm sure Cameron's probably doing something on the new avatars with it, but it's like three, four filming. It is really not caught on. I don't think it will catch on. And, and the reason why is because it doesn't look natural. Okay. And it's not, it's, so it's besides Cameron and, and Ang Lee and, and Peter Jackson, no one's really trying to champion this as like back in the early 2000s when we were going from film to digital, you know, no one's really championing this oh, no. as, as a format. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, not that, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure they're other than those guys. And the reason they're championing is they have a very specific reason for it. And I think that's their 3d work. Uh, other than that, I don't, I don't even think it's a, uh, I think it kind of had its little moment and people flirted with it, particularly when Jackson was touting it. And you know, like, you don't hear Steven Spielberg saying, I'm going to shoot at, you know, 48 or 60. It's, you know, he's, you know, if anything, there's a lot of people trying to push things back toward film. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of power, filmmakers, with a lot of power. They want to shoot on film. And uh, a lot of the really well-made, well-shot films are, are back on film. There's a craft to working with film and there is a quality that comes out of it that is special. Again, I will admit it's subtle. It's subtle. If I showed you a movie on film, I showed you a reel of a movie on film and showed you a reel of a movie, a really well-made movie on digital, you know, Roger Deakins film on digital. It isn't like you'd be like, Oh, that was like crap. You know, you'd be like, wow, they both look good. So it's, it, again, it's a little bit, do you want to work in oil or acrylic? You know, you know what I mean? It's really a, a choice but not like watercolor and oil. Like it's not that, that different. I'm thinking back now to movies like Collateral, uh, Public mm -hmm. Enemies, uh, Miami Vice, the, the Michael Mann yeah, films I, that yeah. were, didn't look good on digital. No, no, I love Michael Mann. I mean, I love his filmmaking, but I will say I did not understand what the heck he was doing on Collateral. I mean, I get that he wanted the city at night to be able to see the sky and the clouds and the sodium vapors and the, all that LA stuff, then just shoot it across the board on digital or yeah. just shoot it across the board on film. But when he mixed and matched, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Um, cause I really saw the difference back then. Now you could mix and match and probably get him to match pretty darn close. In fact, you might not even know other than I know film, I would have known only because film captures, you know, shadow areas differently than digital does. But you would just have to know again, not not the viewer wouldn't know. But I I thought, you know, he was he was fooling around. He was trying stuff. Um, I can't even I don't know what the hell was going on in Miami Vice. Yeah. So so with the, with the push to get back into using film mm. and with more and more productions using digital, would that make the price of film stock more expensive for if you were going to shoot a movie on film? You know, it's really funny. I don't know what price per foot a film is right now in terms of, you know, Kodak who filed for bankruptcy yeah. and, you know, Fuji's still out there. I, I do not know what the economics of that, like bulk film purchases and bulk film runs are now. Um, I'm sure they're bending over backwards to make it, you know, stay alive over at Kodak. But I, I really, you know, one would think with volume gone down, the price has gone up just in pure economics that, you know, that there, there's just, uh, you know, there's not as much of a demand for it, so they can't run as many giant batches and keep costs down. So each batch they do is probably more expensive to make than it used to be. 
Uh, but I don't really, I don't really know the facts behind that. It's been so long since I've shot film specifically um, that I that, and it wasn't an issue then. But that's at least ten years ago since I've actually only shot on. You know, I shot film on Gridiron Gang, yeah. but digital had not yet taken over uh, like it has now. It was probably still like seventy five twenty five then, and now it's you know ninety ten if that. What about cameras? I mean, are they still making projector cameras? I mean, if you want to shoot on film, are, are these cameras starting to age a little bit? They are. Airy, Airflex stopped making their film cameras. Pa- Panavision is still out there. But these cameras are pretty rugged. I mean, they're, they're, they're workhorses. They're, they're not super um, – they're mechanical. So you can keep them up and keep them yep. repaired. Parts are out there. So shooting on film, particularly if you're using Panavision – you know, like, like Quentin Tarantino does, you know, he's using, you know, he shoots film uh, with Bob Richardson and, and, you know, quite a few film. I mean, uh, who was it? Um, Nolan did 70, you know, did it's actually 65 millimeter. They call it 70, but the, but the neg is 65 and becomes 70 in the print. I, I, uh, yeah. So there's, there's guys out there making it happen. The cameras are still being kept up and, and I, and, you know, I know Ari, you know, has really moved over to digital, but I believe, you know, Panavision is still, I don't know if they're still making new ones, but they're certainly keeping it to where you can make any film you want on. It's not become an issue yet. Now we'll see in 25 years. For, for anyone that's listening to this, that's looking to, to break into filmmaking, maybe even just on a very small level, is mm-hmm. there camera, a digital camera that you would recommend that's reasonably priced? Or are, are we looking at 10, 20 grand, 30 grand for cameras? The, that oh, could... no. Oh, no. Well, I don't know what people determine. I mean, the Canon 5D, not up to Mark IV, but you can get uh, like a Mark One, Mark Two, Mark Three, you know, for reduced prices, and the sensor is just as good as the Mark IV. I mean, the Mark IV, maybe you have a little less moray, you have a little less that, you know, there, it, the quality bumps slightly. But if you're starting out, oh my God, the Canon 5D is an incredible, any version of the 5D, it looks beautiful. You know, you can use Canon lenses, you don't have to go out and get perfect. I mean, I, I, you know, a trick I used on the short film called The Punisher, uh, Dirty Laundry that I did, I put anamorphic lenses on a 5D. So that short, which you can find on on YouTube is shot on a 5D with uh, with anamorphic lenses. But the truth is you can shoot beautiful stuff. People say, oh, you make an iPhone film. And I'm like, well, if you can afford, not necessarily even, you know, to buy a used 5D, I would recommend that. That would be the camera I would work with today. If I had to work digitally, you know, I, I think it's fun to fool around with it, with an iPhone. And I think the iPhone does really cool things. I mean, I know Soderbergh just made a movie with one, et cetera, et cetera. But if you want that full frame, it's a full frame sensor, meaning it's the same size as 35 millimeter negative, just like um, the Alexa. But the difference is you have the only differences on a 5D versus an Alexa. I mean, there are other techno, but the big difference, I should say, is that it's compressed. So what, so the Canon uses its own software to compress the video so that you do experience some compression. But if you're talking about releasing on the Internet, and by the way, people use 5Ds theatrically. Yeah. People use 5Ds in action sequences all the time as crash cameras on big, big movies. You know, Google, you know, 5D and theatrical motion pictures, and you're going to find some interesting facts that it surprise you. So um, granted, they put they put Panavision lenses on or they put Airy lenses on or Zeiss lenses on because the lenses make a huge difference. But if you're not 
gonna uh, gonna project theatrically. Although I will say, we ended up uh, going to a festival at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood with the Punisher Dirty Laundry, and it looked good on the big screen. And that was again a 5D. So Canon 5D, that's the one you want. There's the Mark One, Two, Three, Four. You do not have to have the four for it to look good. I have the three. The two was great as well. It's a fantastic. You get a great lens called the 24 to 105 and and uh, lens, which is a great zoom lens. Primes are awesome too. You can again get those on eBay for different prices. So that would be my number one recommendation. It's an incredible camera. Outstanding. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, thank you. That's because I, I get asked that a lot from like a lot of people have always said, hey, next time you're talking to Phil, I, I have a question. Please ask him about this and this and that. And that that was perfect. So I think we'll we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. So this was. Uh, as always, a fantastic conversation, Phil. Uh, if people want to uh, check out some of your work, can you give them the website address? Oh, sure. Uh, it's uh, com. Excellent. All right. Well, I, I know we're going to be talking again soon. So, so Phil, thanks for being on How Is This Movie? And, and I look forward to, to talking very soon. Thanks, Dana. I always enjoy it. Thank you. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find and all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.